Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of The Few Podcast with me, Boo, and the mercurial Sean, Sean. Hey, Sean, how you doing, mate? Good, Boo. How are you tracking today? Good, good. Already slammed up the podcast before we turned on with the chat. I love that. It's so cool when we get to talk to guests beforehand and, uh, you know, it's just natural and all of a sudden you're like, oops, we forgot to hit record. So uh, looking forward to, to to rolling into um, this uh, this podcast today. Hugely topical. I would, as we record this, interest rates have been raised by the largest amount in 22 years here in Australia. It's going to put a lot of pressure on a lot of, a lot of people out there and certainly... I think men feel, I don't want it to, to, to come across gender bias, but I think there's a men feel the pressure with this sort of stuff a lot more, given that there's that provider protector DNA that sits within uh, all of us. And one of the things we don't talk about often is mental health in men. So I reckon it's really lonely that we have today's podcast, mate. What do you think? Absolutely. And uh, having had some challenges with mental health for 17 years earlier in my life. I definitely know from experience and and uh, seeing my siblings go through the same things. I've lost friends to mental health challenges and things like that as well. And it's an incredible, it's incredibly important subject. And yeah, I know that the uh, the next person coming on is is going to be able to give us some some I think some guidance, some understanding, some ideas, and things that people can actually do to potentially get the support they actually need when they are going through some challenges. Absolutely. Look, this uh, this particular gentleman's helicopter pilot, so no, don't don't hold that against him. All right, it's a uh, it's a it's a wonderful profession. Uh, I, I was almost a helicopter pilot. My uncles are helicopter pilots. My my cousins are helicopter pilots. Helicopter pilots are are absolute uh, legends, and it's a really interesting field of work, actually. Like in terms of culturally how it spans around the world, but also a helicopter pilot that's experience some pretty unique mental health issues so actually introduced rather than talk about him Kevin Humphreys thanks mate so much for joining my Sean and I today on the few podcasts really appreciate it okay Boo, okay Sean guys great to be here and yeah I think it is absolutely timely with everything going on in the world floods fire famines war interest rates uh, COVID you name it there's not a, a corner of the community that's that's untouched at the moment but yeah, when it comes to helicopters and fighters, mate, you know the adage, if you can't hover, don't bother. So, so I've been told, mate, many, many times and put well and truly back into my box. Uh, now, obviously, as a, as a helicopter pilot in the Army, it was one of my dreams to, to either fly fighters uh, or be a helicopter pilot, uh, basically the same as far as I'm concerned. But it's a dream job. It's something you think about as a kid. It's something that's in your blood, aviation's in your blood. This particular career with you has, has been with you for a long time. But you really were quite young when you started flying helicopters. What was that journey like? But from being at school, having aviation in the blood, and then going on to a really illustrious career uh, in helicopters, both in the military and outside. What, what's that career been like for you? Yeah, um, I was one of those kids that 
was out in the backyard watching rescue helicopters fly overhead and just looking up in awe going, that is amazing, I want to do that. And when I found out the Army, I was already interested in the Army, and then when I found out the Army had helicopters, I was sold. You know, So straight out of high school, straight into Duntroon and then got on a pilot's course and had the keys to a Blackwalk at 21. I was not a very good fixed-wing pilot, though, so I almost got kicked off a couple of times when I was going through Point Cook. But then from there, it it, it opened up a, a world of opportunity for me that just wouldn't have been there if I didn't get to to fly in, in the military and flew around all of Australia or just about all of it, you know, Papua New Guinea, operational deployments in East Timor, Iraq, Afghanistan, flew as a flight instructor in the United States, so, yeah, I've been able to experience a, a bunch of the world on the ground and in the air, which has just been truly, truly amazing. And when I look back, really quite humbling as well um, to be able to fly the machines and work with the people um, that I did for what ended up being 20 years in the Army and then 10 years of emergency service work, flying search and rescue around various parts of Australia. So it's been been pretty special. So. Tell us a little bit more about, I suppose, your background and, and you alluded to the fact that you've gone through some you know, mental health issues yourself. What was the cause of that? What was the trigger point or what was the things that happened that got you to, you know, get to that place where, you know, you were struggling mentally so that I guess our listeners can understand that it can happen in, in various different ways. It's not just one way to get to that point. The context here to what Kev did in his career as well to attach mental illness to somebody who is so competent, well-trained, is psychologically assessed during the selection process to have their shit together. You know, it's it's an environment where there's a stick because in aviation and mental health issue. But also, look, let's be straight up here, Kevin. There's people out there who maybe aren't getting to their own mental health issues. You're not the sort of person that most people would say, hey, this guy's going to have issues with feeling good about himself or feeling good about life. Well, how does that happen? Yeah, yeah, mate. And that was the very question I was asking myself when I was lying there convulsing on the ground, incoherent and sobbing. And that was... Back in 2008, I'd done a number of deployments, you know, flying missions over in Afghanistan, assaulting. I was the commander of the Chinook detachment, leading missions, um, assaulting Taliban compounds in the middle of the night, landing completely browned out in dust, you know, rocket propelled grenades and bullets flying everywhere. The um, and then you know, trying to another night trying to to back the Chinook up onto a up onto a cliff edge with just the aft gear, getting up onto the onto the, the cliff, you know, rotor blades barely five to ten feet away from the rocks, dangling thousands of feet in the air out in the cockpit and looking over my shoulder for the hover reference, moving the thing that weighs 20 tonnes just inches at a time, waiting for the calls from the crewman in the helmet, right? So when we talk about the highest level of, of training and mission execution and capabilities, I put myself up there as being one of those guys who was there doing it and months later that's like another very edge of the cognitive and physical spectrum for a human being right like the the fine motor skills the mental processing i mean that is that is rock climbing without a harness except in this case you've got people's lives that, that truly depend on every millimeter you move hands and feet right yeah absolutely absolutely and it was just months later that i was then collapsing on the ground, well, 
just prior to collapsing on the ground, contemplating taking my life and and in this really negative spiral, telling myself now's the time, now's the time, do it. But I, I collapsed and I couldn't do it. And what got me to that point wasn't the rockets or the bullets or the cliff edges. You know, for me, that was part of the deal. Now, I, from Iraq in 2003, a drive in the back streets of Baghdad was what brought on my PTSD. I was completely, utterly outside my comfort zone there. I'm quite happy to fly through a war zone, driving through a war zone, driving off the back of a herc in the middle of the night when we landed in Baghdad uh, with an SAS guy beside me saying, do you want to drive or shoot? Saying, well, shit, mate, I hope you're a better shot than me, so how about I drive? But totally unprepared for it and not really knowing what's around the next corner, that freaked the hell out of me. And I put on a brave face at the time, but a month later when I got home and I was, you know, in bed with my wife in, in Sydney, literally a month after that event, and I'm waking up in the middle of the night screaming and crying and asking, am I normal? What's going on for me? But not dare telling anybody about it because I hadn't quite put two and two together. I knew there was something connected there. The phrase PTSD didn't exist at the time, or at least it had been forgotten about. And certainly wasn't dare going to tell anybody at the workplace about it because being messed in the head was simply career termination, right, at that stage. And so I get through to Afghanistan in, in 2007 and, and I'm continually angry, frustrated. Um, nothing anybody is ever doing is ever good enough. It was a combination of a couple of things. Burnout that I know you've had a big last couple of weeks, Boo, I read one of your one of your posts just today. You know, when you're deployed and you're on operations and you're outside the wire, you're on the go. It was funny. I um, I was inside the wire, but flying outside the wire, and I did a census just after I got home in 2006. I think it was 2006 census or 2007, whatever. And um, it was like 140 hours a week of work, and, and that was that was understating what the workload had been. So there was an element of burnout there, but also there was quite frankly a toxic work environment. I had seven different bosses in four or five different continents and the work environment in various ways was really, really fractured and, and quite toxic in many ways. And I really wasn't prepared for that. I was happy, believe it or not, I was happier like a pig in mud to go and get shot at, but dealing with the people side of things and the and the, the climate around that, with everything else going on, just tore me apart. And then was was that a cultural thing, Kevin? Is that what you're referring to? Like the culture of the environment or yeah, so oh, the culture of the environment for the micro and the macro of of what what we were plugged into at the time with a, uh, an American task force and a special forces task force and aviation technical uh, oversight and then national national issues there as well. So there were a bunch of very competing priorities where everybody wanted to be priority number one. And we, we just weren't set up to be able to accommodate everybody's wishes, no matter how hard we tried. So... People don't appreciate the grey area that exists in, you know, the fog of war, the greenness, the the competing priorities, and then you add the human factor on top of that, which is the politics, and, yeah, you just get caught in the middle, right? And not only that, 
even though it, it looks on paper that you're having a rest, you're really having a rest, are you? Because you're doing, and when you're doing, you're not thinking. And when you're resting, you think about what's going on. And when you've got that time to think, it's not the best thoughts. And there's no there's no pressure about apart from typically that toxic masculinity drinking and, and behaviours that aren't, aren't that great. And I think, you know, I certainly experienced my journey with that when I was in Afghanistan, but on the green side was it feels a bit like a meat grinder to some degree in terms of the what exists around, I think, I think you said something really, something you said there, which not many people talk about when it comes to burnout is the perception that everyone around you is not good enough. I think that's a really important key. Every time someone comes back to you or you have an expectation, never deliver to the expectation. And I find that, that feeling as well. And one thing I'm interested Kev, to talk about is the stages of life you went through, right? So as a 20-year-old, did you have any inclination that there was something amiss in the world or was that just knife between the teeth you have a lot of fun, deployments, just enjoying life? Was there any other indicators on the way to your journey when you sort of experienced the impact of it or was that just kind of like life was great? Yeah, no, no I'm, I'm glad you brought that up actually because the short answer is no, there wasn't, right? I, I was just a average kid who just wanted to get stuck into things but I never didn't have any mental illness, mental health issues growing up. I didn't have any as a young adult. I was academically average. I was, you know, just a, a guy who was keen to to do my best and, and that's what I did. And so it wasn't until my first trip home from East Timor in early 2000 when I was going into a shopping centre to get a loaf of bread and basically it's very short answer that is had a panic attack a real involuntary response because a a flood of people came towards me so at that stage I was about 28 give or take and but at the time I didn't know a single person with mental illness I didn't know anybody who had taken their life I knew nothing about mental health and so all I knew was I just did something that I didn't control what the hell was that I can't tell anybody about this. I didn't, I didn't tell my wife, I didn't tell my mates, certainly didn't tell work because I had no idea how to explain it to them. And it was, you know, then 2003, the PTSD, but there was nothing between 2000 and that event to 2003 coming out of Iraq. But then things, I was not well, but I was hiding it from 2003 onward through to 2000 and, um, 2007, 2008. But there was, back into 2003, there was a, another, there was a healthy dose of, uh, of workplace bullying going on there that really, really started to pull me apart. And unfortunately, that then came back into place in 2007, early 2008, which is then I, when I fell apart. So, yeah, it, there was, as a young fella, I was just getting on with life, loving the fact that I was flying helicopters around the country and around the world and, and able to go and do my childhood dream. So, Kevin, one of the things that um, we've got a lot of uh, I know business owners that listen to this podcast, as well as you know individuals, people that haven't been in uh, the Defence Force in any way, shape or form or had those experiences where they're being uh, shot at or driving through the streets in Baghdad or a war zone or anything like that. For me, my understanding, you know, that the triggers, the things that create that trauma or that so situations that then, uh, I suppose, lead us to have some mental health, uh, health challenges, which I know in my case was the situation that 
it can be caused by many, many things. So ultimately, I suppose the problem is is a human one, not necessarily the situation that's caused it. So I do notice that a lot in business owners. I notice that myself. You know, I had depression for 17 years, you know, from about 17 till whatever 34 or so. And it wasn't until it took me 17 years to actually ask for help, right? I'd struggled through it. I'd gone in waves and hidden it. I'd not said anything to anyone about it. I felt like an idiot. I thought there must be something wrong with me. I had at 19 come very, very close to ending my life. It was shit, to put it bluntly, for a long time. And what I don't want other people to be going through, and I share this openly with my clients, with with anyone who's doing that. I know that one of my friends in her daughter's year nine class, one of the girls actually took their own life this week, which has really rattled all of the at school, they've never had anything happen to his whole history, you know, and it's it's a very, very challenging, very difficult thing. But how would you take it into account into a, as the human factor of, of mental health? What are some of the things that you would suggest that people can do if they are struggling and looking for, to getting some support and maybe they are feeling embarrassed or isolated or something's wrong with them? Yeah, absolutely right. The and, and indeed, when I when I started down the the road of mental health advocacy and keynote speaking and all the rest of it, I actually thought my audience was going to be male veterans. And I've now spoken to just about every industry there is out there: superannuation, finance, education, military, construction, stevedoring, engineering, mining, you name it. And it's this, it's the same story each time and it's the same reaction each time and that's because as far as I'm concerned as long as you have a brain and a blood supply you're susceptible to mental illness right and and therefore it doesn't matter what business you're in or what industry you're in we're all equally susceptible so prevention is always better than better than cure and depending on where you are on the mental health spectrum so there's mental health and there's mental illness mental health doesn't mean that you're absent of a mental illness, right? Mental health, to have good or optimum mental health means that you are able to have an an optimum contribution to society and for your own goals effectively, right? So there's a few different definitions out there. That's, That's Kev's definition. Mental illness is, and sorry, and you can have good mental health, poor mental health, you can have mental ill health, but that still doesn't necessarily mean you've got a mental illness. Mental illness is, is something that's diagnosable un, uh, out of a big book called the DSM-5 and then, you know, go from there. Looking after ourselves, prevention is better than cure whenever possible. And there's, you know, there's eight things that I, I talk about to, to go through. And, and the first four, gratitude, finding gratitude in every situation, any situation, every day. Even the worst of circumstances, there's still something that you can find gratitude for. It's not to say that there isn't despair or grief or sadness, but there is always gratitude if we look hard, hard enough. And then from there, we've got to recharge ourselves, and that might be through meditation or yoga or reading a good book. But just because one person's recharge method doesn't necessarily have to be the same as yours. A psychologist I had a chat with oh, a number of months ago now, been practicing as a psychologist for his whole adult career. He's a wealth of knowledge. And he said, Kev, don't ask me to do yoga, mate. Wouldn't care about it. Give me a good book and let me curl up in the corner. That's my happy place, right? That's where he recharges. 
So what recharges one person is different for, for all of us. And then from there, we've got to make sure that we find compassion. And this is one of the big lessons that I found is I can I can give reasons, but there's sympathy. Sympathy's quite selfish, right? Uh, and then you've got empathy, and empathy is awesome. But you can have empathy fatigue. And then you've got compassion, and, and compassion is actually uplifting for both people, the giver and the receiver. But the magic in compassion is when you can actually give it to yourself. You can't actually be empathic to yourself, but you can be compassionate to yourself. And it's not to say that you, you set a low bar. It's just to acknowledge that some days we have a shit day and you, you know, as, as my dad used to say, and I didn't realise how compassionate he, his words were. He was a butcher for 40-odd years. He was a hard guy. And um, but it was only later in, in life that I realised when he said, you know, son, that was today, tomorrow's another day. It was actually an act of compassion. Right, Kev, one of the things that obviously have seen, which I think we all know, is we're always hardest on ourselves. You know, whenever something's happened, we beat ourselves up like much more than anyone else ever would. We just would not allow that to happen. And I think that's where I know that for many years I did struggle with being able to be compassionate with myself, to be able to accept where I was at and, and not beat myself up. So having the you know, gratitude and compassion and things like that is, is very important. And that that recharging, actually topping up your batteries, you know, filling up the tanks um, is very important. I can see that. Hugely, hugely important. I'm least compassionate with myself, second least with my wife and my kids and everyone else I'm pretty compassionate with. And it wasn't until that was pointed out to me. I, I, was, I was ignorant to that. Like I, I actually genuinely didn't see that that way. And then it was pointed out to me and it became very obvious, right? And and that comes to a whole thing around awareness, which we'll see how we go for time, whether we get to, to talk about that a little bit later on. But, yeah, one of the keys with compassion, actually, a really, really simple self-test that you can do because you're right, Sean, we do talk to ourselves so disgustingly, so poorly sometimes. The simple litmus test is, Imagine that you're teaching a six-year-old how to use Lego for the first time. How would you do that? What would your tone and style be? What words would you use? What would the volume be? That's how you talk to someone compassionately. So if you're talking to yourself and it's not sounding like you're teaching a six-year-old how to use Lego, then you're not talking compassionately to yourself. A good friend of mine, John Broadbent, who also has a thing called Man Unplugged, so it's about supporting men transitioning through life and challenges and things and mental health and all that sort of stuff. And one thing he taught me quite a few years ago, he said, what you need to do is he said, when you're thinking something, narrate it out loud. So actually say what you're saying in your head out loud and see whether you accept it then. He said, because when it's in your head, it can hide. When it comes out of your mouth, you're like, oh, oh, geez, okay, well, that's not really what I mean. And I wouldn't be that harsh to myself. And it was, it's a very, very powerful tool to just narrate, just say out loud what's, and, and sometimes, you know, I'll be in my office here and I'll just be saying stuff out loud. In the past, I would have thought I was a bit crazy, but it works because you're just like, whoa, shivers, I just caught myself. I'm not going to, not going to do that. I'm not going down that path. That's not serving me. No, that, that's a, that's a great tool. That's a fantastic tool. Yeah. And next is to contribute. So, you know, to give is to receive. And it, it, it just your time and whether it is to, you know, anything from a soup kitchen to your local soccer club to whatever it is in between, 
it may be, and this is a great one and one that, in all honesty, I, I didn't do anywhere near enough of, your own kids. But if you are able to contribute outside of the family structure to, to strangers or other organisations, then it really pumps the tyres up a lot, I've got to say. You know, from there is to now let's start having a look at what we're actually putting inside our bodies in terms of our food, our drink and our sleep and and with that then the way we breathe. The gut is the first filter of the brain and quite often what we're thinking up here has been impacted directly by the quality of the nutrition that the gut is feeding it. You know, the brain will take up to 25, well, actually sometimes over 25% of the energy consumed, over 25% of the energy that the body has to use. And if the energy that's been given to the gut is poor quality, then the energy that's going to the brain is poor quality as well. So it really makes a, a massive difference. I absolutely experienced that myself. So when I was struggling with, with some mental with well, Melton illness, it was diagnosed clinical depression. I was 20, nearly 20 kilos heavier than I am now. I ate rubbish all the time. I was drinking lots of soft drinks and all this other stuff. And I was just foggy and irritable. And my brain function was horrendous in comparison to what it is now and having you know, moved into things like intermittent fasting and um, eating vegetarian and stuff for the last you know, 18 months as well now and a few other things that have really helped clear up my mind and make it, you know, that, that I can see that difference now between what, what I put in and if I do have something that's a bit not quite as good, I'll, I'll actually notice it in my brain. I'll be like, oh, does it feel cloudy all of a sudden? You know, within like 20 minutes of having something or a half an hour or an hour of having something, I'm like, wow, I never noticed that before because pretty much all I was putting in was that. So you can, you can really feel that difference when you start to nurture your, your body more. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and, and so what I say to people is the, the first four that I've said, right, about how to, to look after yourself, if you really concentrate on those, you'll end up doing this next part automatically, right? If you start displaying gratitude, start actively looking to be grateful for things, recharge, find compassion and contribute, you'll start to take better care of yourself. You'll start to take more awareness of what it is that you're putting into your mouth, what you're eating, when you're eating, what you're drinking, when you're drinking, and the way that you breathe. And then importantly, sleep. So, you know, I've, I found out about six years ago that I got sleep apnea. Went to the, you know, and particularly for guys, I was getting up in the middle of the night a couple of times to, to go for a leak. I went to the doctor thinking I had to see him about a prostate issue. That all turned out to be clear and was scratching our heads trying to work out what's going on. And I said, you know, there's some days I could just crawl under a desk by 10 o'clock in the morning, have a little kip. Oh, really? What's going on there? So they sent me off for a sleep study and found out I had medium to high range obstructive sleep apnea. And I tell you what, when you get a fully oxygenated night's sleep, wow, 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 does the next day turn out to be a whole lot better. So sleep is vitally important to good mental health as well. Um, not to mention to keeping your medical alive as well, let me tell you. Yeah, and, and I think one of the challenges, Kev, with mental illness still is as much as there's a worse of it, I still think there's a stigma attached to it and there's a stigma attached not only with you know, putting your hand up, it's like what people think of you as someone that has mental illness. And one of the things that would be really interesting to talk about is your journey with that. And again, there's so many lessons that can be learned coming from aviation where 
it's not just a stigma. You actually stop your job for a while and it's a job you love doing. How did you come to terms with that and having those conversations uh, with yourself initially and then putting it out there into the support network? So when I had my breakdown, I, you know, now I was found out. So, and I was immediately grounded, which I was in a ground job anyway in the army. So it wasn't a big deal in terms of the flying roster that I was grounded, but it was a big deal to me that I was grounded. And I wasn't even allowed to fly civilian aircraft, which at the time really annoyed me because my problems weren't in the cockpit. My problems were in the workplace and in my mind when I was asleep and whatnot. So, but as annoyed as I was at the time, I look back now and I go, absolutely, that was the right thing to do. Absolutely, I needed to be grounded to make sure that I could actually maintain my figurative wings level when and as I needed to and there weren't going to be issues in the cockpit. So it took me nine months until I got back to work and it was about the same period of time before I got my medical back. For me to get my medical back, I had to go and do a, a barrage of, of testing, of, of aptitude, uh, not aptitude testing, of, of um, word escapes me at the moment. But anyway, spent a day with a, a, a neurologist and, a, and another specialist going through test after test after test to see that I could maintain my ECRI medical, which I passed with flying colours, which was fantastic. So that got me back in the cockpit again. I declared everything along the way to CASA and the DAMI and, and all that kind of stuff. DAMI, for those who don't know, is your, your, your aviation GP, basically. But the thing that happened for me at that time was I also, for, for a bunch of reasons, one of which was being declared damaged goods by the hierarchy, it was time for me to leave the Army and take up civilian flying. So I was so embarrassed and ashamed, totally, totally ashamed by what I consider was allowing myself to have a breakdown and, and mental illness and suicidal ideation that I asked my wife to keep it a secret. And so I left the army, we moved and created our personal and professional lives so that question never, ever came up. So I hid it from family and friends. I never hid it from the regulator. I never hid it from the doctor or from whatever else, but it certainly wasn't part of the crew room discussion. And I was really fortunate that I managed to land a search and rescue job straight off the bat and get into it. And it wasn't for seven years that I finally it was actually doing some business coaching and, and this, this uh, lady in Sydney, Michelle Duval is her name, I'll, I'll forever sing her praises, um, she said, Kev, you're doing really well with all the business coaching, but there's something you're not telling me. Like there's there's something here. I know there's something here that you're hiding from me. And until you tell me what that is, I can't fully help you. Anyway, through through a few more sessions and a shitload of tears, I eventually released my secret of the suicidal ideation, the breakdown and mental illness and all the rest of it. And she asked me this really pivotal question have I accepted the fact that I contemplated killing myself and that I've got mental illness and I broke down again and I said no no I, I, I don't accept it that means I'm complicit in what happened and I, I don't believe that it's my fault anyway so 
when I eventually composed myself, she asked me to close my eyes again and she said, I want you to imagine that everything you've just told me is out there on social media and I lost it. I lost it. She said, no way, that's never going to happen. And a couple of months later, I ended up talking about it publicly and then I've been on the, the mental health advocacy journey ever since. I, when I finally got it off my chest, I honestly felt 20 centimetres taller and 20 kilos lighter. It was amazing. So acceptance was the key to unlock me transitioning from being functional, getting on and flying again, to being vital. And acceptance was the key that unlocked the journey between head and heart because whilst my I got my head functional again, my heart was still hurting big time. Kevin, just to jump in here, that, to me that is, and I know I had, I had to go through a very similar journey and it was about actually accepting the fact that you need to be vulnerable and, and it's actually a courageous act to be vulnerable and share that with somebody when you've been hiding it, when every cell in your body is saying, I don't want to go there. I don't want to admit this. I don't want to own this. And that's, to me, is you know, an incredible, incredibly courageous step to take. It, it is. And, and, you know, at the time, I didn't use the word vulnerable. Actually, to be honest, I'm not a fan of the word vulnerable. I haven't got an alternative for it. I just don't use it. But I absolutely acknowledge that, yes, that's, that's what it is and that's what people have to go through to be able to truly travel down this road. And to expose yourself in that way takes inordinate amounts of courage. But, again, I, I'll speak about myself in the third person here. Kev has never considered himself to be a man of courage. Kev has considered himself to be a man who just does what needs to be done and get on with it. And it's not to say that it's courageous or not courageous, it's just do the right thing and get on and doing that. And so that acceptance piece, though, really, really flipped the lid for me. Hopefully we can keep talking for about two hours here because I've got so much to talk about on this. But we'll do a part two. Yeah, yeah. But um, what that did for me, though, was allow me to really shed the, the, the last piece of the understanding of paradox, right? And I know that may sound a little bit weird here for a second, but I was always a very black or white thinker. And the military, like that's me, that's that's my personality. And that also works in the military, right? The military is about solving problems effectively. That's in a very practical sense. That's what the military does, right? You've got a problem, you solve the problem, you move on to the next problem. That was what I was good at. But there's this world of grey in between. And on top of that, I always believed that there was a black or a white, not necessarily both at the same time, and the paradox just didn't exist. Well, in the, the whole journey around the acceptance piece, a lot of reading and, and a lot of self-exploration made me realise that paradox absolutely exists. You know, yin and yang from an Eastern philosophical perspective, light and dark. And so this overwhelming sense of shame that I felt for years and years, I came to the realisation that pride is the opposite of shame. And for people, and I initially put this just into a military context, 
But I, I came to realise, because I believe the military self-selects proud people, right? And when you get off the bus at recruit training centre or at officer school or whatever, then pride is bashed into you physically and figuratively to be proud of your country, proud of your unit, proud of your uniform, proud of your service, proud of your mate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And that all the way through your military service is all about being proud and don't you dare go jack on your mates. That is the thing that will bring shame upon you the quickest. And so as you go through life, if, if paradox is real, then as pride increases and increases and inflates and inflates and goes up and up and up, the potential for shame also goes up. So when I fell in a heap, when I contemplated suicide, had my breakdown, that pride evaporated in almost an instant and I was left with what I believed was real shame. And and whilst I, I say I said that about the military, I, I've since seen it a thousand times over in various people in the emergency services. I've seen it in lawyers. I've seen it in accountants. I've seen it in builders. I've seen it in every other occupation. So pride in, in yourself is something that really comes with the, the double-edged sword being the paradox of shame. And so we really, really need to be careful of that. And I think that's one of the things that for men in particular who we aren't good at talking about this and we're certainly not good at articulating the stuff that goes on inside us sometimes, the shit feelings that we have that we don't have words for and we don't know how to actually get it out of our mouth and explain it to people, that for a lot of us, for me at least, helped to explain it. So to come back to my my breakdown momentarily and how I got back into the cockpit, one of the things that I realised I haven't spoken about, at some stage the phrase my mind got me into it, my mind will get me out of it came to me. I don't know where it came from, but that's what I started saying to myself. I'm a fairly visual guy though and whenever I saw myself, I saw myself as that convulsing guy on the ground who was useless and wanting to kill himself and I needed to change that self-image. So I actually thought back to my childhood and there was um, a show called The Six Million Dollar Man, which you guys might remember. And for those who, who don't know what it is, it was a TV show in the, the 70s and 80s of a, a US Air Force pilot who became an astronaut. He was in a horrific accident and he should have died, but they rebuilt him with bionic technology as it was known in the day. And um, and so I, I loved that show as a teenager, absolutely loved it. And so, you know, his mantra is we have the technology, we can rebuild him, make him better, faster, stronger than he was before. And so I got the image of Steve Austin, the astronaut, and put my head on his body in my mind. And so whenever I was sitting in the psychiatrist's waiting room, getting an ice cream, going for a run, getting a loaf of bread, you know, whatever I was doing, I would visualise and see myself as him and see him as me and I have the technology. I can rebuild me. I'm going to make me better, faster, stronger than I was before. I'm going to rebuild my brain and just play that over and over and over and over and over again thousands of times to re-imprint, rewire my brain for who I was and what I was going to be. And that was just, yeah, incredible 
to see how that changed the way I viewed myself. Really, it was uh, it was amazing. What were the? I think you were. I think you got to number five on those eight things you were talking about. I think it was an acceptance or or awareness. I think. Yeah. So number six is clinical. So a, a clinical clinical checkup, right? So we all should be going to see the the doctor every 12 months just for a routine checkup, check the blood pressure, all the rest of it. And, and, you know, I go and see a psychiatrist every three to four months. I call it my ops normal call. I don't necessarily like that I have to go and see, well, I don't have to go and see a psychiatrist. It's actually my choice to go and see a psychiatrist every three to four months. But I do it because I know it's good for me to do. And and like I say, it's my ops normal call. So well, I do the same every month, at least once a month. I'm seeing either a psychologist or a psychotherapist or you know some other alternative modalities of coaching, support, healing, that sort of stuff to, as you say, this is it's to keep me on track. It's like that little tune-up, that little tweak. Things start to go, it just, just keeps me moving forward in the right direction. And it's, it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. I've been doing that for nearly probably four and a half years straight now. And it's been one of the most valuable things that I could have done, the, the gradual 1-2% progression that you make by doing that, by sharing things and working on uh, the way that we see things or the stories in our head or, or the way we behave in certain situations or react to triggers and things. And it, it helps immensely to, to actually be consistently, like going to the gym, you go three times, you get sore. Yeah. You go for three months, you start to get strong. Right, so if people consistently do this, I think it's going to have a positive impact. That's exactly right, and the gym's a great analogy. Lots of people have said about you know the the mind; it's like a muscle that needs to be exercised in order to gain strength. And just like the routine of going to the gym, it's not a single one of those regular trips to the gym that actually gives you the strength. It's it's the consistency of going to the gym that builds the strength. And same, same, it's the consistency of the support and psychologist, counsellor, psychiatrist, et cetera. And, and like you, mate, I, I go and see a psychologist roughly once a month as well. Builds resilience too. That's what I've found. It's, it's, it strengthens your kind of flaw that if something hits it, it doesn't collapse. It bends and then you come back and, and you get stronger and stronger. So it doesn't get dented as much as I find, as how I describe it. And it bounces back a lot quicker. Because you build that resilience. Not everyone has that natural capability. You know, I think most of us don't, particularly when we've had some sort of traumatic experiences or we are literally burning ourselves at both ends like I did for bloody 10, 15 years in business doing 80 plus hours every week and never having a holiday and that's it, been heavier and all other stuff that was going on. I wasn't giving myself any any real help. It was just push on, push on, push on, push on. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, and I think one of the keys to resilience is perspective. And that's that's one of the things that psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellor, healing, you know, all these other modalities, that's one of the things that they give you. Certainly one of the things they give me is a different perspective on a given issue uh, that allows you to see it differently and allows you to see yourself differently and build another level of awareness, which then in turn, excuse me, builds resilience. Number seven is connections. So connections are super important. And the one that I encourage people to look at when it comes to connections is the understanding that, you know, there's the nature-nurture debate about which one 
has more influence on us when we're growing up and up to age seven and all the rest of it. Our environment determines success in a very, very large way. So who are the five or six people that you hang around? Because chances are the five or six people you hang around, if you take their salaries and you average them out, your salary or your income, don't worry about it, you might all be self-employed, whatever, your, your income within 10% of the average of all of theirs, right? But we're not really here to talk about finances. We're here to talk about mental health. Well, the same average goes in just about every part of the spectrum that you want to think about. So whether it's income, whether it's physical health, mental health, socially, whatever dimension you, you want to cut it into, spiritual, religious, etc. chances are the five or six people you hang around, you're the average of the people you hang around. So if you look at the five or six people you hang around, and if you're happy with that, how do they all react emotionally to change at, in the workplace or at home? How do they react? What type of food do they eat? What type of behaviours do they have? What type of conversations? What, to, what topics do you talk about? Absolutely. So if you're happy with the average of all of that, then two thumbs up, crack on, have a great life. And I don't mean that facetiously. I mean that very genuinely, right, because it's, it's not about what is going on. It's about how you feel about what is going on, which, again, this awareness comes into it that if we're completely unaware and ignorant of what's going on, well, we might do poorly with our mental health or with our finances or, or with whatever else. But to a degree, ignorance is bliss. Once we start to become aware, once we either because other people tell us or because we're starting to have things go wrong or at least not to plan in our lives, then we start to ask ourselves the question, what's going on around me? Am I happy with the state of play? And if I am, great, crack on. But if you're not happy with being the average of the people that you hang around, let me tell you, there is only one person who will do anything about that, only one person, and it's not your friends. So it is absolutely up to you. And the last one, number eight, is knowledge and education. So that's about whether it is through self-help, self-development, courses like mental health first aid or whatever the case may be, educative podcasts, and lived experience examples and all the rest of it, then all of those different types of education come into play, again, to give us different perspectives to build up our knowledge bank and build up our self-awareness to be able to make better decisions and then crack on a great life. So building on what you've said there, those eight elements that to me make total sense because I've learnt those over time. I think it actually started for me, it started with a bit of knowledge. It actually started number eight. When I started getting knowledge, I started to realize there was other things I needed to do. There was ways I needed to improve things from nutrition to sleep to actually starting to talk about it and, and get support around it to move through. And, and when I did it from where my, where my mental illness had come from, it actually resolved itself very quickly when I addressed it because of the nature of what it was and what was sitting there. And 
I'd probably done, I think I'd done a lot of work in the background on it and I just hadn't realized that I'd actually progressed so far. And then when I got support, it kind of tipped me over to sort of pop out the other side and not have that challenge now for 15 years or whatever it is, 13 years or something. But what are the resources out there that you know, Kevin, whether it's through what you're involved in or other resources where that people can actually go and find some support and actually find somewhere they can trust, somewhere that feels safe for them to actually be able to share this and, and move through it because it can be very difficult. But if you find the right people you trust, you can get the support you need. Yeah, absolutely. Trust is, is pivotal and people talk about having a safe space. That was absolutely key for me to be able to pivot. The, the business coach provided a very private, very intimate, safe space for me to be able to just crack the lid. And then from there, she gave me some of the tools to be able to take into the next safe space that I had, which was actually a group of about 150 people going through a business mentoring program. But even though the number was a big jump from two, or actually three, my wife was doing the business coaching with me, to 150 it was the fact that the way this group had been put together and the mentor with this group meant that this group was just like one big bunch of the best friends in the world. And so even though there was 150 people, it was absolutely a safe space for me to be able to crack the can wide open. So finding that safe space is number one. And, and that may well be different for every different person. Yeah, it, it might be your best friend. It might be your GP. It might be your sports club, right? Or it might be an uh, anonymous forum online because there are plenty of different forums and, and the rest of it online now. So now there are also just a multitude of different ways to get help, whether it's online chat, whether it's text messaging on the phone, whether it's callback services, whether it's, you know, standard 1-800-13 numbers or, or whatever else through Black Dog, Lifeline, Beyond Blue, and Sober in the Country, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different helplines out there. And then there's a bunch of groups as well. So it, it does depend on where you are geographically, where you are technically, in terms of your tech savviness and how comfortable you are with that and then where you are personally with the group of friends that you have around you. Right? So typically speaking, people find it easier to share personal details with strangers than with friends in a lot of cases, but in some cases they prefer to talk with trusted friends. One of the unknowns with a trusted friend is if, you're about to tell them something that you don't think they have any idea is coming, you need to know that they are going to still have your back after you tell them that. And that's a judgment call that I can't I can't say which way or the other one. You just have to make the call. From what you're saying, Kevin, I think one of the things that I found is, and in working with many people that have gone through some some challenges like this as well, is that don't give up. Don't just try one method and it not work. If you're too intimidated to do face-to-face, -face, start with a phone, right? Just, just talk to someone on the phone because it's much less personal. It's a bit more impersonal. So you're not feeling quite as raw and bare as you would be if you went and sat in front of somebody. 
what I've found that the most powerful is definitely face-to-face in person. You just, I cannot, I personally can't beat that. There are some things and some of my closest friends I'll talk about almost everything, but then when I want something more specialized, I'll go to someone who actually has the training for that too. So you've got to look at what is it you're actually working through as well. But clearly you've learned a lot in this journey and, and being an advocate, I'm, I'm incredibly humbled to be able to have you on the show today, mate, because this is something that's very close to home for me as well. Given what you've learned on your journey, if you were to go back in one of those you know, really difficult times you were going through and teach yourself something that could help you through it, what would you go back and actually teach to yourself? To keep it really simple, I teach myself two things. The first one is paradox that I was talking about before because I was very firmly black or white on pretty much everything, right? So the first thing I would would teach is paradox. And the second is the mantra, this too shall pass. And one of the things that I've learned is that when you can say that to yourself, when you're experiencing absolute joy, fun, excitement, like the world is great, when you can experience that and say to yourself in that moment, this too shall pass, then you're on the track to success because, yes, you need to say that to yourself when things aren't going well. But the fact is that we've all had brilliant experiences in the past and we've all had, let's call them suboptimal experiences in the past. But, you know, the fact is they have passed and the next bad event, the next good event will pass as well. We just need to keep that front of mind to know that we can get through this next thing. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Absolutely. Well, we could keep talking. There's such an important topic. There's so much to, to go through. And as said, you know, as we both said, you know, you've got to reach out and get some support if you need it. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really, really appreciate it and your perspective on things. Yeah, thanks, mate, for being so so open and honest about it all as well. It's fantastic when people think deeply on this and can provide not one size fits all and give it that context around, hey, it's a journey you start it, you've got to work it out for yourself. But the key is don't stop, right? Don't stop. So we'll put some links into the show notes. You can reach out, find Kevin directly, or although, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't mind if you DM him on any of his social pages or off the back of this podcast if you need a little bit of help. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Kevin. Guys, thanks very much. This has been The View Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The View Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week. 